So if you've been journeying with us over the past several weeks, we have been going through chapter 10 of Matthew. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 is what's commonly referred to by scholars as Jesus' missionary discourse. And so what's going on there? Sorry, got some some video (laughs) problems. I think so, yeah, I think we're good. Uh, what's commonly called uh, the missionary discourse. And uh, what essentially that means is that uh, Matthew is telling this narrative about Jesus and and he's taking some of Jesus' sayings and and he's putting them in this place to teach uh, his community and ultimately us uh, things that Jesus wants us to know. And so uh, Jesus is actually sending his disciples out, uh, but he's, he's teaching them something about mission, his mission, and how we get to be involved with that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn right away to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to jump right into verse 26. Matthew, sorry, chapter 10, verse 26. So it starts off by saying this. So do not be afraid of them. Okay, I'm going to pull a a classic Chris. Let's stop here. We can't really understand what Jesus is saying here unless we go back and, and look at what he's already said. So if we go back to Matthew chapter 9, the very end thing that happens is Jesus has gathered his disciples together and, and he's looking around at, at, at the people that he's interacting with. And, and he says this statement, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And what he means by that is that there are people who are desperate to know God. They've been chasing after trying to do it in their own strength, whether that's through religion, like, man, I'm going to see if I can just be this right, good person all the time, and that's failed them. Or maybe just through self-discovery, like, I'm just going to do my own thing, and yet that's failed them. And Jesus says these people are desperate to know that there is a better way. But they're not going to know unless someone tells them. So pray that God would send out more messengers to tell them that the better way has come in and through me. Very start of chapter 10, Jesus then takes his disciples, he calls them to himself, and he says, I'm going to send you out to fulfill this prayer. You're actually going to be the answer to this prayer, the way that God uses you to answer this prayer. But he doesn't just send them out arbitrarily. He, he empowers them. He says, you have my authority, my spirit, that the power that I have had to demonstrate the goodness of God's kingdom, you now have. So he calls them, he empowers them, and then he sends them. And in the same way, we recognize that each of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, has been called that he's given you his Holy Spirit to empower you, but also that he has actually sent you out. Following this, Jesus says, okay, you don't have time to go home and get like a spare like sweater or get some spending cash. You need to get out there immediately. There's a sense of urgency. Why this sense of urgency? Because again, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. If you've been part of this uh, community for any length of time, then you're probably sick of hearing the statistic. But we live in uh, beautiful, probably, in my opinion, the most beautiful city in Canada, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. About 400,000 people around that call the greater Victoria area home. 
but less than 5% of those people, to our knowledge, know Jesus. Now, it's easy for me to throw out statistics like that. So let me unpack this a little bit for you. What this means is there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who will go to their grave not knowing their creator, not knowing the God who lovingly sculpted them and wants to transform and use them for his glory and their good. They will spend an eternity away from him. If you're hearing that, and there's not a sense of urgency that's welling up inside of you, then might I submit to you that I don't know if you've truly yet experienced the grace of Jesus in your life. There's a sense of urgency because there is a sense of desperate need. Jesus sends his disciples out, but he tells them, hey guys, guess what? This isn't like a a road trip. You know, you're not going off on some holiday. Like this is going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. And this is why Jesus is in verse 26 saying, do not be afraid of them because of this whole list of things he's about to tell his disciples. Listen to this. In, In verse 16, what does Jesus say? You are going like sheep among wolves. And Chris kind of unpacked this for us last week, but what do wolves do to sheep? Well, they eat them, they devour them, they tear them apart. So what Jesus is saying is, guys, you're going into hostile territory. You're not just going into neutral territory, you're actually going into a space where people are against you. Listen to this beautiful list that he lays out for us. Verse 17, you're gonna be flogged. Now, I don't know about you. I don't really know what flog means, but I think it's like getting beaten with sticks. Doesn't sound like my uh, best life now. 18 and 19, you're going to be dragged in front of authority figures because you've been arrested. Verse 21, even your own family's going to dislike you. In fact, your own family might kill you. Verse 22, you're going to be hated by everyone. Verse 23, you're going to be persecuted. Verse 25, if people called me Satan, if they slandered me, if they said mean things about me, guess what? They're going to say those things about you. But then Jesus has the audacity to say, but don't be afraid of them. Jesus, this is a pretty pretty tall order. This is a pretty tough list. Now, let's be honest. For most of us, we hear that list and we think, Yeah, that was then, but this is now. I mean, we're not really worried about getting flogged. We're really not that worried about people coming up to us and calling us Beelzebul. But let's reimagine for a minute what Jesus might say if he were to speak this message to us. Don't fear. Although, because of me, you might get mocked in the marketplace. Don't fear. Although, because of me, you might lose deals and status and positions and opportunities. 
Don't fear, although because of me, your family might disdain you. Think you're a complete and utter idiot. Don't fear, although there will be people in society who call you a bigot or who call you a simpleton because of me. Don't fear, even though you might be hated by people in your own culture. Don't fear, although at times you might feel a little awkward talking to your neighbor. Maybe that hits a little closer to home for us. Yeah, it's true. Probably most of us don't have to worry about our families killing us. But maybe some of us are quite worried that our families won't want to have anything to do with us. So as we continue on in verse 26, we actually see that Jesus gives us some specific reasons not to fear. And, and there's two things that Jesus is going to unpack for us today as, as he kind of ends this mission discourse that, that he believes are going to pull us away from his mission, the thing that he has sent us on. And, and the first of those things that he's addressing right now is fear. So he says this, For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. So why is that a reason not to fear? Well, if we go back to verse 25, we, we mentioned this early, but Jesus says this, if, if the head of the house was called Beelzebul, how much more the members of the household? Now, Beelzebul is just like a fancy word for Satan. Like if people say, hey, you're Satan. Have you, just as a, a side note, have you ever just like called someone, dude, you're Satan? Uh, it doesn't have, I think, maybe the same effect that calling Jesus Beelzebul would have in, in their culture. But it's not typically, I mean, sometimes we probably say something like that, like a joke, but I mean, there's those times when we're really, really mad at someone and we think of like the worst thing that we could call them. And you're Hitler. You're a little Nazi. Uh, why do we say that? Because in, in our contemporary age, this is probably one of the worst things that we could think of. Someone who's done an inexplicable, like terror and pain and suffering to a people group. And that's tantamount of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, people are going to say some really horrible things about you. But then he says this, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What's, what's Jesus saying there? He's saying, don't worry, guys. It's okay if someone says some mean things about you. You know why? Because that's not the end of the story. There's going to come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that I am Lord. And on that day, everything is going to come up to the surface. And all those things that people said about you that weren't true, they're going to recognize how untrue they were. And you will be vindicated. Jesus is essentially saying here, don't worry what other people say about you. Because in the end, I, I get the final word. I'm the one who says the final word about you, and what's true is going to be the thing that lasts. He continues on, gives us a second reason why we shouldn't be afraid. He says, 
What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Now, I want to jump back here for a second to this idea of proclamation, because what Jesus is getting at there, again, is he's saying, don't be afraid. In fact, have the opposite effect. When, When stuff happens to you, be bold. Be bold. Be willing to proclaim, because you know the final answer. And then he moves on and he says, okay, what's, what's the next ob- objection you might have? And what's the, the most extreme possibility that you could think that someone could do to you? I, most of us, if, if we think, man, what are the things that I'm afraid of in my faith? What are the things that keep me from sharing Jesus with other people? Like on the top of your list is probably not death. No one here is really worried about dying because they talk to their neighbor about Jesus. But Jesus says like, okay, let's, let's actually like play this out a little bit. What's the worst possible scenario? Worst possible scenario that could happen? Oh, someone might kill you. Okay, Jesus, that seems pretty bad. I don't know about you, but like death is not top of my bucket list here. But then he says this thing. He's like, don't, don't worry about that. Jesus, what do you mean don't worry about death? That's a big deal. No, because, guys, listen. All they can do is kill your body. That's, that's a lot. I like this body. Most days, you know, I look in the mirror sometimes and I don't like it, but for the most part, listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you are not just your body. You are a soul. You are a person. And that person can live on. Your body will come to the end it will degenerate, degenerate, and, and eventually it'll fail. But your soul will not. So saying even if they kill your body, they can't really kill you. And then he says there, there is something that you should be afraid of, though. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. C.S. Lewis, I think I've used this illustration before, but C.S. Lewis uh, has crafted this wonderful children's series called The Chronicles of Narnia. And it's allegorical, which means he takes sort of pictures of life and implants them into his stories as an allegory. And there's a character who represents Jesus in his story named Aslan. Aslan is a lion. And uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the very first story that he wrote, there's this character named Lucy, and she's meeting with these talking beavers. And you know what? I swear I don't think he was on narcotics or anything, but there were talking beavers. And, uh, and, and they're telling her about Aslan. And she says, oh, well, what, what, who is Aslan? And they're like, well, he's a lion. And of course, like she asked the very sensible question, is he safe? And they look at her like she's completely, like, lost it. Did you not just hear what we said? He is a lion. 
Of course he's not safe. Man, a lion's ferocious, can devour. You know, the the really ironic thing that Jesus is getting at here is for a lot of us, and myself included, we're afraid of the little chihuahua that's like barking at us. Carrie definitely is. I've been around her with dogs. (laughs) When we have a lion on the other side, And we're so worried about the chihuahua that we're ignoring the lion. And Jesus says, man, you guys, don't be worrying about the chihuahua because there's a lion and he's way more ferocious. He's way more scary. He has way more power. Now, I think it's important for us to unpack this a little bit because you might be here for the first time thinking, man, this is exactly the kind of thing that I was not happy with. You know, I went to, you know, some kind of religious institution and they talked about like this angry God who wanted to throw lightning bolts down on me, rain judgment. Like I was afraid to come in this morning because I was worried that fire was going to smite me. And then you have this passage and it seems like it reaffirms that for you. This angry God who's waiting for you just to screw up so he can throw you to hell. That word hell, though, is there's, there's actually several words in, in the Bible that in the original Greek get translated as hell. And this particular one is Gehenna. And it's important to understand that because uh, Gehenna just wasn't this word in isolation that when, when we think of hell, it's almost this medieval uh, picture, you know, this like place of like fires and like red creatures with like uh, weird tails and bat wings and pitchforks and horns. And this isn't really what Jesus is referring to. So you get the the word Gehenna uh, actually is a, a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, which means Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was this place outside of Jerusalem. And that place was, in Jesus' time, the place where they would come and burn their garbage. Everything, they wanted to get it out, keep uh, an area sanitary, hygienic. They would take it to the outside. Similar to what we do with a landfill, right? We take our garbage, we, we put it someplace so it doesn't contaminate our area. And so when Jesus says, don't worry about these people, but worry about God because he can destroy your soul, what Jesus is saying is, and God is a God of justice. And there's going to be a day when his judgment will come. And you don't want to be part of that. Now, a lot of us have this innate, like, when we hear the word judgment. I mean, how many of us have been like, I don't judge. And we say that because what we're saying is like, I don't feel qualified to speak into your life because my life is a total mess itself. And that's probably a fair statement in many cases. But then we apply that same rhetoric to God and we don't like the idea of a God who judges. But I actually want to challenge you a little bit and say that I think that's, that's, 
that's not what you really believe. So I was reading an article uh, in the paper a couple of weeks ago. I told this story of a, a girl who um, had this gang, and uh, one day her gang decided to break into this guy's house. Uh, guy was autistic, um, and they kidnapped him, and they, for a couple of weeks, stuck him in a dog kennel, and they would take him out and brush him with a barbecue brush. Or how many of you know the story of uh, Tori Stafford? All right, her and her boyfriend so it's going to be fun to kidnap an eight-year-old girl and do horrible things to her and beat her to death. I have a five-month-old daughter. One of the things that terrifies me the most is the statistic that one in every four women are sexually abused. As I look around, 25% of you ladies in this room have probably experienced some man violating your body. I hear those things. And let me tell you, I long for God's judgment. I long for it. I long to live in a day when he says, no more. This will never, ever, ever happen again. I think probably all of us Feel that and agree with that. And this is where some of us are a little bit naive. That we are okay with God's judgment for the external factors, but we miss the fact that there's something deep inside of us that's broken. It's that thing that comes out when you're fighting with the person that you love the most, your parents or your spouse or your siblings or your best friend, because you know them deeply, you know how to hurt them deeply. And you do it. Why do you do it? Because you're sick. I'm sick. I do it. You know what? I don't just long for a day when all that horrible, bad stuff external to myself gets taken away. I long for a day when the crap that is inside of me gets taken out like trash and burned up. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be a day when a good God will act to end evil for all time. And on that day, you don't want to be part of what he sweeps away. And the only way that can change is just submitting yourself to me. So don't fear other people. Because all they can do is kill your body. But stay faithful to the mission that I have given you. It's heavy. And I recognize it's heavy. And Jesus recognizes it's heavy. And so this is what he says in verse 29. So are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. 
So don't be afraid, for you are worth far more than sparrows. You know what? If we leave this idea of God's justice in isolation, what we're going to feel is fear and shame and guilt, knowing that we cannot measure up, that we probably deserve to get taken out with the trash. But listen to how Jesus describes God. He says, Man, you guys know those birds that we sell? like for a penny that no one really cares about? Like those birds' life is in God's hands. They, you know, one of those birds is not going to have a dumb incident where it flies into a glass window and breaks its neck without God being in control of that situation. What he's saying is God is intimately part of your reality. Man, he has sculpted together the hairs on your head. Think about it. Uh, Kirsten... Kirsten Parker, uh, she doesn't do this as much anymore, but she's a phenomenal artist. And if you ever, like, get a chance to kind of see her in action, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so I've, I've got to watch her uh, do art over the years, and, and the intricacy and the care that she'll put into a portrait is incredible. Each line, like, carefully constructed, lovingly placed, agonizingly attended to, And Jesus is saying, man, this is the kind of God that we're talking about. A God who knows the numbers of hairs on your head. Why? Because while you were in your mother's womb, he was sculpting you, forming you. He was saying, man, this is how many hair follicles I'm going to give Andrew. Chris is going to get a few less, but Andrew's going to get a good amount. (laughs) Jesus says, something profound here. He calls God our Father. And and when we think about the best sort of ideal father, it's someone who is both just and loving. Someone who is going to discipline us in such a way that we will develop to be a good, uh, sort of a good father ourselves someday, that we'll learn how to be functioning members of society, that we become responsible and um, people of good character. I love my dad a lot, but there were times that I had a healthy fear of him. That wasn't a bad thing. And it was always balanced out by the fact that I knew that he loved me. And so Jesus says, don't worry. Even though God is a lion far more ferocious than any other person, he's also far more loving Some of you here today need to know that God is a lion. You need to take a step back and say, man, I've been afraid of the silliest things. Shannon and I have these neighbors that just moved across from us, and uh, they, uh, just three uh, students, and you know what's so silly is like, I have had this like, I should go like knock on the door and say hi. I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's kind of weird and awkward. But I mean, wait, I know that God has planted us in this neighborhood to be on mission, to love people, to care for them, to invite them into our community. But that, I don't know, that seems a little bit weird and there's a little bit of anxiety around it. God says, man, you're, you're afraid of that? 
guys, like, I hold your eternal destiny in my hand. But some of you here today need to know that God is a loving Father. And he cares for you deeply. And that ultimately will motivate you to share in his mission because you want the freedom and the love that you have experienced to be the freedom and the love that other people experience. Kind of closing off this thought, Jesus says in summation here, however, or whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So what's Jesus saying here is he's saying, I get it, guys. Like this list that I've given you of things that are going to happen, it is scary. It is scary. And and you're going to want to say, I I don't think I want to talk about Jesus here. Because these things are going to happen to me. And yet Jesus says, in the end, guys, it's worth it. It's worth it because if you stay faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. Now, I want to recognize that as we hear this, there's, there's probably some of your, your spidey senses are kind of tingling a little bit because you're like, oh, wait, what's, what's Jesus saying here? Is he, he's somehow saying that we have to like earn our salvation, that we have to earn our way into God's kingdom. I, I thought that was like the whole like Christian thing is like you can't earn it. And, and I think that in order to understand this, we got to look at how this plays out in a particular person's life within the Bible. There's uh, one of Jesus' followers, we've met him a few times already in the book of Matthew named Peter. Peter is like the ultra keener. Uh, Matt went to school with me, so he would say, uh, Peter's probably like the Andrew of the, you know, the Jesus' disciples, the one who sits at the front of the class and like raises hands and like goes and talks to the professor after. Uh, yeah, so that's Peter. And, and Peter's like all bravado. He's like, man, Jesus, like you're saying that like, people are going to kill you. I'll never let that happen. And she's like, Peter, it's going to happen. Well, then Jesus, like if you're going to die, I will die too. And Peter gets this moment. Jesus is in the garden praying, and this group of people come to arrest him and ultimately kill him. And Peter runs away. And there's this profoundly disturbing and sad moment for Peter. Uh, After he runs away, he thinks, oh man, I got to see what's going on. So he sneaks into the courtyard of the place where Jesus is about to be condemned to death. And along comes a servant girl. He's sitting by this fire, and she says, man, I think I recognize you. You were with Jesus. Oh, man, Peter, this is your moment. Redeem yourself. All those things that you promised Jesus you would do. I don't know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Another servant girl comes along. No, I'm sure I've seen you with Jesus. No. Absolutely not. Dude sitting across the fire from him. Man, you've got the same accent as Jesus. You're from the same part of the country. For sure. For sure you are with Jesus. Damn it. I don't even know the man. It says that he calls down curses upon himself. Three times he denies Jesus. 
John chapter 21, the end of, of John's recording of Jesus' life. It's recorded that Jesus is calm and he's risen from the grave. Peter's out fishing. Jesus shows up at the beach. He's cooking up a little filet of fish sandwich for him. Which reminds me, filet of fish. Guys, don't do it. Peter comes. Just imagine his heart. And he is like faced. Jesus, who he betrayed, who he denied, who he said, all these great things that he failed to do. And Jesus asked Peter one question. Peter, do you love me more than these? Jesus, of course I do. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. But Peter had betrayed Jesus three times. Now, there's something that can happen here that I think is is dangerous. The thing that can happen is we look at Peter's life and we think, oh, man, I get that. I get that. I mean, he, he screwed up. I feel like I screw up all the time. But the point of the story is not to highlight Peter's screw up as much as it is to highlight Jesus' sufficiency. You know what? Peter didn't love Jesus as much as he needed to. But Jesus loved Peter so much that he was able to cover his sin, his denial, his betrayal. It's actually why Jesus went to the cross. It's because no matter how much we fail, and Jesus' grace is big enough for that. The Apostle Paul, another early follower of Jesus, he has this wonderful poem that he quotes in his second letter to Timothy. He says this in, in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. Jesus is saying, it's not too late. It's not too late. You might be feeling like, man, I, I hear this challenge I know that I'm supposed to be on Jesus' mission and I've failed and I've been scared and this fear has pulled me away from it. Jesus is saying, don't worry, it's not too late. There's a second thing that Jesus recognizes pulls us off his mission. In verse 34, he says this, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace but, uh, to earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. This one's a no-brainer. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. For whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake 
will find it. This first statement, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It doesn't fit, hey? Like when you hear that, you're like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. I mean, after all, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know in in Luke's uh, account of Jesus' life, one of the first things that Jesus is called is Prince of Peace. In fact, even earlier in Matthew's gospel in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. So what's Jesus saying? I, I didn't come to bring peace. That seems like the opposite of what he actually has said he's come to bring. But again, we, we got to read this in the context of what Jesus is talking about, which is his mission. We use the word mission to talk about uh, military operations all the time. And I think in, in In our Christian culture, it's easy to kind of domesticate this idea. But when Jesus is saying, like, my kingdom has come, he's saying, my kingdom is invading. This is an invasion. You're going into hostile territory. And what's going to take you off that mission is forgetting that you're at war. So he says, "Don't, don't forget. You're at war, and what that means is that there are going to be people and things that try and pull you off that mission. That there are going to be people who are actually like part of your lives, but aren't part of my kingdom. And you should love them, you should care for them, you should serve them, but don't forget that they're part of a different kingdom. And you're actually at war with that kingdom. He quotes this, this poem uh, by an Old Testament prophet named Micah, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I, I won't read this for sake of time, but if you have a chance, I invite you to go back to Micah chapter 7. Because what's going on in there is, is Micah's looking around at this people that was supposed to represent God's kingdom on earth, the people of Israel. And he's saying, man, this, this people is so compromised. They've completely forgot what kingdom they're part of. You can't trust anyone. You can't trust your father, your mother, because they are, so, they are so enslaved. They are so enraptured by this other kingdom. He says, my hope is that God will come back, and that's what I'm going to wait for. And here's Jesus saying, God has shown up. and He's calling you to his mission to be part of his kingdom. Don't forget that. Don't love anything more than that. There's a, a phenomenal uh, TV series on Netflix called The Crown. Any fans of The Crown out there? No one, man. Like three, four? Okay, there we go. <laughs> uh, th- this interesting plot line, I guess it, it's actually true, happens in the second season where it comes out that uh, Queen Elizabeth II's uncle, who had been uh, king and abdicated the throne, uh, had actually been colluding with the Nazi party with this desire to become a puppet, uh, puppet uh, king for them during kind of the World War II era. This man was willing to betray his kingdom for his own gain. What happened? He started to love something more than he loved his country. So the first thing that Jesus says is going to take us off mission is fear. The second thing he says is love. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me 
is not worthy of me. Why does he use this particular example? Because what's more intimate and more important to us than the people that raise us, that love us, that care for us, that nurtured us? When Shannon and I first started to sense that God was leading us from Alberta to, to Victoria, um, we started to let her family know, man, this is, this is the mission that God has called us to, and it was really hard for them. They were really hurt and frustrated and, and upset. I love my, my in-laws a lot, and they have been absolutely supportive of us, but that was a very hard moment, and it was a hard moment because uh, Shannon actually had to go through a period of time where she recognized, I'm going to have to deeply disappoint and hurt my family to follow Jesus. That's hard. It's hard because she deeply loves and respects her family. And maybe you are hearing this and you're like, man, I love my parents so much and I respect them. And Jesus isn't saying don't love and don't respect, but what he's saying is, man, if they're calling you or pressuring you or telling you to do something that goes against the mission that I have called you to, you got to love me more. And then he says, anyone who loves their son or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I've been a pastor for several years now uh, in a couple of different church contexts. And, and I've had this conversation several times. I'll talk to uh, someone and they're lamenting the fact that, you know, we have been... Uh, parents who've like brought our kids to church gatherings and like they've been to Christian school and uh, then they've been in the youth group and yet now they're choosing not to follow Jesus. And I, I will say this, this isn't true for everyone, so don't hear this as like condemnation for like, man, there's lots of complicated things, I recognize that. But many times I've had this conversation with someone and it becomes apparent as I hear their story that they lost sight of the mission. that they lost sight of the mission. And so what happened is they, they had lots of good things that they, they taught their kids, they wanted their kids to do, man, like do good in school, be successful in sports, learn how to be a good citizen. And, you know, when you can throw it in, do the church thing. And here's what happens. Is that they've... Un- intentionally maybe, told their kids that you can love a lot of things and Jesus just needs to be one of those things. But when push comes to shove and those kids say, oh, well, I actually think that I love this thing more than Jesus. We haven't taught them that no, Jesus is the thing, the person that you need to love most. Pay attention to the decisions that you make because you are actually discipling your kids. You're a parent. And you may think, man, I, I love my kids. I want to do right by them. And, and so you pour your life into them. But if you pour your life into your kids over your God, then you're teaching them that there is something more important than Jesus. And it's a lesson they're not going to forget. 
So I encourage you, as you sit down and think, man, who are the people that God's called us to? Let that be the defining question that decides the rhythms of your family. There's something besides family that captures our hearts. Jesus says in verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. We live in a culture of finding oneself. I mean, it's probably like the most important value, self-actualization. I read a really interesting article. This is like my tagline. I read an article. Um, (laughs) But I I did read an article recently, and it was, uh, I think it was in, the Huffington Post or something like that, this lady, uh, she was talking about this, uh, this relationship that had arisen. She had been married for several years, had a couple kids. There's a couple that they were friends with, uh, also had a couple kids. They do stuff together. Uh, you know, one day she was spending time with just the husband of the, the other couple by herself. They end up having an affair. She leaves him, start this whole new life. And she's, this article is celebrating that decision. You know why? Because she has found herself. And some of us would look at that and be like, oh man, like, that's, that's horrible. Like, how could you do that to your family? And yet, even within a culture of a church, how do we make decisions? Like, what makes me happy? What fulfills me? What's best for me? There's a reason that self-help is one of the biggest genres growing today. And yet, in an age where we have more emphasis and more celebration of discovering oneself, of creating oneself, of finding oneself, we have a growing epidemic of suicide, mental health issues. Why is that? Because Jesus is saying here, the search For oneself, the love of oneself is not a sufficient savior to fix what's going on inside of you. Because that's that's really what what we're doing, right? When we're trying to discover ourselves, we feel like something's off and we want to try and make it right. And Jesus says, if you go about that route where you're just like, how can I do this? How can I make it better? In the end, you're going to lose everything. But if your attitude in your heart is saying, man, I'm just going to follow Jesus. I'm going to chase after him. Then you're actually going to discover who you've been created to be because I'm actually going to shape you. I'm going to fulfill you. And when that happens, I'm going to use you for my mission. So don't love yourself because that can distract you from what I have called you to. How do, we, how do we do this? How do we wrestle with this? Because that temptation is all over the place. It's our proclivity, right? To constantly want to put our own needs first. Verse 38, he says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, we don't have a, a graphic image of like this type of execution, but taking up a cross, man, that was a, a embarrassing, brutal ordeal. Because before you even had the nails put into your hands and your legs, 
you would be carrying this crossbar of the cross right to the place where you were about to die. It was this act of like rigorous shaming. And Jesus is being super graphic here. He's saying that self, that thing that pops up and says, man, man, you really want this. You should have this. This is going to be the true you. He's saying, you got to put that to death daily. Wake up in the morning and say, man, what's that thing inside of me that's, that's actually me trying to take the controls of my life? Put that to death. What might that look like? Well, maybe it means you come home from work and you're exhausted. And you see your neighbor out front yard trimming the hedge. And you think, man, I'm, I'm going to go say hi, even though I'm tired. And I would really just like to crash on the couch and watch Netflix. See what you're doing there is you're saying death to self. Maybe it means when you're sitting with your coworker who really annoys the heck out of you, and you're like, man, they're having lunch right now, and I just kind of want to stay at my desk and eat my lunch by myself. That person's super annoying. She's just going to talk and talk about her life, and I don't want to hear about it. Death to self. Maybe it means, as a parent, that moment when you like, ah, man, I just, I just want to have like some us time. You think, man, this is actually an opportunity for me to invest in discipling my kids, to lay down my life for them, death to self. Maybe it's that person who drives you insane. And you're like, I don't want to spend any time with them. It's a neighbor, a friend, family member. And yet you say, man, Jesus, when I was an enemy, went to the cross for me. So I'm going to kill that thing inside of me that says, this is my own time. Say, Jesus, this is your time. This is your mission. How would you like me to use it? If we continued on without this next portion, we, we might be a little depressed because it seems to be focused on like all the bad things that will happen while we're on Jesus' mission. But Jesus actually says, it's okay, guys, because some people are going to respond. Verse 40, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Highlight that word reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will not certainly lose his reward. She says, guess what, guys? It's not all bad. Some people are going to respond. And if they welcome you, they're welcoming me. And if they welcome me, it means they're welcoming the Father who sent me. They're welcoming God into their house. He says that they're going to get the reward, which is me. There's sort of three ways that Jesus identifies that people might receive us. The first, I would call the, the prophetic way, which is that someone, you, you, you preach to someone, you teach someone, and it just resonates. They're like, man, that, that is just truth. 
you share truth with them and it just convicts their spirit. They're like, man, yeah, I got to respond to that truth. A second way is he calls them a righteous man. It's, they, they look at the quality of your life and your integrity and they say, there's something different about you and, and it's not you. There's something more. The way that you live is compelling me to see that there is something more. Now, we can hear those two things and think, man, guys, like, I, I'm not a preacher. Like, I can't come and talk about these things really well. Or My life's a mess. But this last thing is, is incredible. And if anyone does something even as simple as giving a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, and he's not talking about kids. What he's saying is, one of these people who is just insignificant, who looks like they don't have anything together, but they're a follower of me. Truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, yeah, there's some people, and they're going to just have this truth. And some people, and their lives are going to just speak volumes. And some people, probably most of us, we're just insignificant. But the thing that's going to capture the heart of the person or people that we are on mission to is seeing me. And if they welcome you, if they're even open to you by giving you a little bit of hospitality, that's enough. I can work with that. And in the end, they will get the reward. That reward is me. I want to invite the band to come up as we close off here. I want to acknowledge that we can hear this call on our lives, and it's intimidating. It's scary. The idea of mission, of sharing our faith, of being bold, is not something that comes easily to us because we live in a culture that's like, kind of like, eh, like don't stir the pot. But the good news is that ultimately, we don't do the heavy lifting. Jesus does. See, Jesus says, beginning of this, that not only does he send us, but he empowers us. And then he tells us that in the end, he will reward us. going to take communion in a second. As we break the cracker, it's a representation of the lengths that Jesus went to to pursue us. His broken body on the cross. We dip it into the wine or the grape juice, a reminder of the blood that was shed. It's a reminder that we don't have to be sufficient because he was and he still is. We're going to get to respond in song. And this is a way to to say, man, Jesus, you are great. I can trust you. You showed me that I can trust you because of the cross, because of the lengths that you went to on my behalf. We're going to get a chance to give. It's a way to say, man, Jesus, you've called us to your mission, and I want to pour myself out for that. And that includes the finances that you have given to me.
Maybe today, you're like, man, I don't even know where to begin. Ken is going to be at the back. And if you need prayer, I just invite you to go back there. Maybe it's a chance for you just to come and, and say, man, Jesus, I haven't been on your mission. I've allowed things that I love or things that I fear to pull me away. But I want to start. Let me pray for us. Father, you've called us. And there is a lot at times that seems scary. Father, there's also a lot that are precious to us and important to us. And yet, we know that you are far more powerful and far more worthy of our affections and our love because you are far more loving. So I pray for West Village as a community that the love that we have experienced would pour out of us and the boldness in your pursuit of us would give us boldness knowing that you are far more powerful than anything else that we have in our way. I pray that we would be faithful in following you on your mission and that you would be faithful in continuing to use us as little ones who are insignificant and bring nothing to the table, yet because of you, we'll get to see many people in Victoria gain the reward of knowing you. Amen.